Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to Justice a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this week's episode, I speak to Sue McAllister, prisons and probation ombudsman. Sue explains her work to carry out independent investigations that aim to make custody and community supervision safer and fairer. I'm Sue McAllister, I'm the Prisons and Probation Ombudsman and I've been the Prisons and Probation Ombudsman for a little bit more than three years now and we investigate complaints from people in prison and other places of detention and we also investigate deaths in custody, so any death that happens in a prison or an immigration removal centre or an approved premises. So our two main functions, investigating complaints and investigating fatal incidents. And you were created in 1994. And what was the purpose of the Ombudsman being set up in the first place? You're right. We were created in 1994. And you may remember that in 1990, there were a series of very serious disturbances across prisons in England and Wales, the most famous of which or infamous of which is Manchester Prison. But there were also disturbances at Cardiff, Bristol, Pucklechurch, Dartmoor, um, right across the prison. And there was, following those investigations, an inquiry was set up headed by Lord Wolfe to look at what could be done to prevent further disturbances, obviously, and why this had happened, you know, what was going wrong in prisons. And one of the things that Lord Wolfe identified was that People in prison at that time had nobody independent that they could complain to about their treatment in prison. Right, so it was just the governors and the prison officers and... It was, yes, absolutely. Um, So it was essentially the prison service marking its own homework. So Lord Wolfe suggested or recommended that there should be an independent ombudsman for prisons. So he was obviously indicating and relating those disturbances to prisoners feeling really frustrated that they were perhaps being ignored and that their complaints were being ignored? Yeah, I think perhaps a little bit broader than that. He he identified that prisons at that time were, they were overcrowded, they were, um, they weren't decent places, um, really. I mean, they were just places where lots of staff were doing their very best, of course, but where there was no real independent scrutiny of what was going on behind the prison walls. So essentially, prisoners felt that nobody was in their corner, if you like. So, you know, if they had complaints about anything from lost 
property to um, their treatment to transfers to categorization the only people that they could appeal to to hear their complaint were the prison officers and the and the prison governors in that prison so um, it, it was identified that that wasn't appropriate everybody else in society has got somebody they can complain to you know if you've got complaints about health you can complain to the health ombudsman if you've got complaints about your sofa you can complain to the furniture ombudsman but at that time people in prison didn't have anybody um, that they could complain to so the prison's ombudsman was set up um, at that time 1994 I think we came into being and soon after that the remit of the prison's ombudsman was expanded so he became the prisons and probation ombudsman and um, the the prison and probation ombudsman carried on as an ombudsman hearing complaints investigated complaints for some time um, and then we were asked to take on the investigation of deaths which also until then had been done internally so um, usually what would what would happen before the ombudsman took on the responsibility was a manager from one prison would be sent to another prison to investigate a death. So it wasn't quite um, marking your own homework, but it wasn't independent either. So it was identified that to comply with human rights legislation, there should be an independent investigation into every death in state detention. So the prisons and probation ombudsman agreed to take on that additional responsibility. And that's where we are today. Okay, and, and am I right in saying um, that the role was also expanded to take in secure training centres and immigration removal centres? Yes, yes. I mean, at the time we were set up, and I'm, I'm not an expert on the dates on this, but I remember from my own experience of working in prisons, secure training centres didn't exist at that time. So, um, you know, with youth custody, you will know this has been through... Um, lots of um, iterations. So, you know, youth custody centres um, became um, youth, young offenders institutions. There were detention centres and secure training centres are, are the most recent iteration of um, places where, where children and young people can be held. So, yeah, we were, we were asked to take that on. That sounds like um, quite a large expansion. How many people work for the Ombudsman? Because, um, yeah, that was quite the increase. It was. It doubled the size of, of the organisation. We're still a fairly small organisation. We're about 100 people. Um, and that's sort of divided almost evenly. A few more people working on complaints, but it's sort of almost evenly across complaint, uh, complaints and fatal incidents with a, a, another small-ish team, which is our learning lessons and strategic support team, which is where our analysts and our corporate services sit. But we're, we're quite small, about 100 people. And just trying to work out what your workload must be like, because, you know, there's what, so roughly 131 prisons in this country. There's, you know, probation services are obviously up and down the country. Um, the approved premises, fatal incidents, we know that sort of deaths in custody have gone up dramatically in recent years. And then secure training centres and immigration removal centres. I, mean, I can't imagine what the workload must be like. It's... Um, a workload that's actually outside of our control, as you as you suggest. So we're completely led by demand for our for our services, and the number of deaths has gone up um, significantly since we were first asked to take on the responsibility. And of course, the prison population has gone up. So potentially, the number of of complainants has gone up. 
Um, we have had additional staff during that time, so we've been able to bid for more money to, to, to have more staff. So, for example, we've just increased the number of post-release deaths that we're investigating. We've added that to our terms of reference and we got some additional investigators for that. So we, we do get extra staff sometimes when we take on additional work, but inevitably the, there are peaks and troughs to our work. So where we experience peaks, sometimes that means that other things, usually timeliness of our reports suffers. So, you know, each investigator has a caseload and that caseload will be fairly constant, um, but they get through that caseload as, you know, as quickly as they can and then take on additional cases. So if we have a big rise in the number of deaths, some deaths will, will have to wait longer to be investigated. And equally, if we get more complaints, some complaints will need to, to wait longer. Now, interestingly, the number of complaints has gone down in, in, in the last couple of years. So um, we've been able to do some really good work in reducing the size of our backlog. We've got a very, very small backlog now, hardly a backlog at all of cases waiting to be investigated. Why do you think that is? Is that because obviously the last couple of years is COVID. Do you think people just had other things on their minds or what do you think that was about? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we expected something very different to happen. We we had planned actually to write uh, one of our learning lessons bulletins on COVID complaints, but we haven't had enough COVID complaints to um, to to find the material for such a bulletin, we some of this is not this is not um, empirical evidence. This is just really anecdotal and what we what we believe and what people tell us when we talk to people in prisons. Um, we think exactly as you suggest, Edwina, that when the first lockdown started, there was a real sense of we're all in this together, and prisoners largely were very accepting of the restrictions that were placed on them as a result of the pandemic because everybody else was experiencing the same sort of restrictions the 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 danger is that if communities open up more quickly than prisons do that that won't always be the case and we've you know we've seen some some cases of that but yeah we had very few complaints for example very few complaints about visits being um, suspended. We had very comp- few complaints about regimes. We had some, but but not as many as we would have would have expected. Um, there are also some areas where we get very few complaints anyway. So we don't get many complaints from women, and we don't get many complaints from young people, and we don't think that's necessarily a wholly positive thing. So we've been doing some work to try to understand why women and young people don't complain to us as much. Um, some of that work we've done together with some of the advocacy services. We've put adverts on prison radio and prison TV. We've gone out where we've been able to into prisons and talk to people about what we do, who we are, tried to understand, you know, what some of the barriers to complaining are. So there are some some groups where, where consistently numbers are low, but others where it, it fluctuates more more significantly. Okay, and what's the process, just um, so that listener can get a picture of if you're, um, say, a female prisoner, you're in a prison, how on earth would I know how to make a complaint? First of all, you should be told as part of your induction. So we, we produce some publicity literature. We produce posters and we produce leaflets that um, should be available in reception and the posters should be on walls in in every prison now they're not and and we've been you know trying to understand why that is but we're we're just in the process of reissuing some updated posters you know so they've got update 
up-to-date contact details for us. But you should, if you're in a prison, you should um, be able to see information about who we are, what we do, how to contact us. There should also be complaint forms um, available on the on the wing. But of course, we're the last resort for complaints. So we're the final calling point for complaints. Nobody complains directly to us. You have to complain through the internal complaints mechanism first. Um, and complaint forms to be able to do that should be freely available. Okay. And so why would it then escalate from me complaining to a prison officer how, if they ignored me and I wanted to carry on complaining, is it up to the officer to have to put it up to the ombudsman? No, no, the, the, the complainant can can put, put their, their complaint up to the ombudsman. It's usually because they haven't had the, the response that they want from the internal process. So prisons have um, have a business hub usually who will which will monitor complaints and make sure that they they um, their own processes meet the timescales and that there is peer monitoring there's QA in place now obviously that varies from prison to prison in terms of how good it is but usually prisoners complain and there are two two stages for the internal complaints um, if they don't get um, satisfaction from those two internal uh, stages then they can come to us now the process for that has changed during lockdown because it used to be that they would send their complaint forms with the responses that they'd had from the prison to us we'd take copies we'd send the original back to the complainant and then we'd work on the um, the photocopy that's all changed now because there were times when we couldn't get into our offices so we've agreed with the prison service that complainants can can get a photocopy of their complaint form free of charge which then comes to us so we now get a copy of the complaint form. We go back to the prison to request any additional information that we need. Might be a property card or a, um, you know, a work allocation form. Anything to back up the case. Might be use of force reports. And then our investigators carry out an investigation into that. So they look at whether policy was was um, complied with. They look at whether the response was reasonable whether it was courteous enough, whether it was full enough, uh, and then we'll make a decision as to whether we uphold the complaint or don't, and we'll make recommendations back to the prison to say what they need to do to put things right. And that could be compensation, it could be an apology, it could be to look again at a decision. So then who is in charge of making sure that any compensation or apology happens? Because now I'm obviously thinking, you know, so you've made a, a recommendation to the prison about my complaint, uh, that the food was really bad or something, I don't know. Um, and who makes sure that I get my compensation or my apology? The, the process requires that the prison comes back to us with a response to tell us when, they, when they've done that. And do they always do that? Um, sometimes, they, sometimes they are less willing to do it, but generally, yes, they do. What we'd like to do is to do ourselves out of business. So we would, we would love to see a system where complaints are dealt with at the most appropriate level, and that will usually be the local level. So for something like a pair of trainers that may or may not sound important to somebody from outside, but is really, really important if it's, you know, if, if you haven't got very much stuff, there is no earthly reason why a an investigation about what happened to a pair of trainers and a decision about whether or not to offer compensation needs to come to the PPO. 
It's completely disproportionate. Um, and if you think of the cost of the local investigation and an appeal against that and a further investigation by the PPO, that will cost far more in terms of public money than would compensation for a pair of trainers. So we need to... We need to work with prisons to get them to understand that it's often better to resolve something at the local level. Those of us who work in the prisons know that the prisons are sort of chronically understaffed at the minute and that's got a lot to do with um, COVID and people leaving um, because they're older, they're going into retirement or, you know, the retention rates are difficult. So officers don't have much time. Prisoners have a lot to say and often a lot to complain about, often rightly. Um, Would it not make sense to have a sort of you know, satellite ombudsman actually inside the prison. So actually it's someone's job just to go around troubleshooting because they'd be really busy people. I genuinely think from my own experience of working in prisons um, for, you know, more than 25 years, including as a governor, I think prison staff need to own the system. I think they need to own the process because it's it's actually only by seeing the complaints and dealing with the complaints that you then understand what needs to happen to make it less likely that things are going to go missing in the future, for example, if we're talking about property. I don't think it's a good system to rely on somebody else to come and sort out your problems because there's no ownership. There's no ownership then. Um, and it, we know we know that that sometimes, you know, some staff will say to um, say to complainants oh just complain to the ombudsman so you know they they but the majority of the complaints that we see um have gone through the the two you know the two local um stages and they have people have received responses and i think that's by far the best the best way to do it we're just about to start some work with a couple of prisons um to work with their staff to work with the staff that respond to complaints at the local level to you know help them to to do better responses and to to get them to understand you know what might be in the way of apologizing or suggesting compensation we know that there is a culture in some prisons where apologizing to a prisoner can feel really difficult can feel like a really difficult thing to do or where you know, giving somebody 50 quid for a pair of lost trainers is hard, but it's easier sometimes to do it if the ombudsman's told you you've got to do it rather than because you're owning up to having, you know, lost the, the item in the first place. So we're trying to push things down to that local level all the time because that's by far the most appropriate, the most cost effective and the, the method that's going to lead to fewer complaints in the future. And I was wondering whether prison staff get trained in this during their it's known as POELT isn't it prison officer education learning training something uh it sounds strange to people on the outside but they new prison officers are known as POELTs um do they get any training on this yeah it's prison officer entry-level training isn't it um I don't think they do but I would suggest you don't really need training to know how to look into what happened to um, you know, a visit starting late last Wednesday or somebody not getting their canteen. I mean, I, I think much of it is common sense. Now, I, I hear what you say about sometimes people feel they haven't got enough time. But again, you can spend longer worrying about not having time to do something than, than getting on and doing it. I don't underestimate how busy people working in prisons are. I mean, in, you know, I know for myself, from my own experience, and as you say, it's much more difficult now with fewer staff and, and more restrictions but um it's not it's not difficult it it is it is largely common sense and the process is quite formulaic you know the forms are quite easy to navigate 
um, it's not. And I mean, the other thing to say is that, that responses both at local and at PPO level need to be proportionate. So I'm trying to push my colleagues at the PPO into doing a more proportionate response. Because when we speak to complainants, what they tell us is that they, they want a response quickly. They want something that's dealt with promptly. They don't want it to take months to get a re response. They'd rather have something quick, even if it's a shorter response, than something that's 25 pages long that takes three or four months to, you know, to come back to them. So I think that applies at local and PPO level, that we, we need not to overcomplicate th this and just really keep things as proportionate as we can. Yeah, I was in um, two different women's prisons yesterday and I knew this, but I was shocked to hear it again that um, many, many women in prison don't have enough underwear. And it reminded me to mention something about it when you said that women very often don't complain about things. And one governor was telling me that, you know, she'd say to the women, well, how many pairs of pants do you have? And they'd say, well, one, it's fine. I can... I can just wash them and put them on the radiator and wear them again. And it sort of made, it just sort of broke my heart, really. And you sort of think, how is it 2022? And regardless of what anyone feels about prisoners in this country, common decency surely indicates that female prisoners should be provided with underwear. <laughs> You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with any of that. I, I mean, I don't I, I hadn't heard that. I agree with you that it's it's not acceptable, but it's also really easily fixable, isn't it? Moving on to the deaths in custody, how long I know sort of how long's a piece of string sort of question, but how long would it take usually to investigate um, a death in custody? We do have targets for investigating. So for a self-inflicted death, it would be 26 weeks. Um, so six months and for natural causes deaths it's slightly less than that I think it might be 20 weeks don't quote me on that but it is it is slightly less than that but we do have time targets and the reason we have time targets um, is because we know that our reports are used by the coroners to form part of the material that they have for the inquest so so there is a, an urgency in some ways to getting them out However, it is our, they are our targets. So over the last two years, we have missed those targets more often than we would have done because for all sorts of reasons, because it's been very difficult to get the clinical reviews, because some health um, care staff have gone back to the front line, sometimes because it's been hard to get documentation from prisons because they, they've been firefighting on lots of other fronts. Sometimes some of our staff haven't been available for all sorts of reasons. Either they've been ill themselves or they've had care and responsibilities. So we have taken a bit of a hit in the last two years on timeliness. But usually it's about it's, it's six months for a self-inflicted death, which if you compare that to, for example, you know, some other scrutiny bodies that, that look at the police, for example, or if you look at some of the other the near miss investigations that are done within the prison service, which we don't do that that's actually quite swift it sometimes feels a long time for the family but it can it you know it is it, it is it is quite swift sometimes it will be longer for example if the police are investigating we have to suspend our investigation until the police have finished and sometimes things like toxicology testing can take a long time because it's it's sometimes not seen as a priority but we do try and get them out on time where we can 
Yeah. Um, and then there was obviously the two high profile PPO reports that came out, um, one last September, one this January on the two very sad baby deaths, one in Bronzefield Prison, the other one more recently in, in Style Prison. And I know that sort of part of your report, there's recommendations, isn't there, that are then handed over to the prison saying you need to do better in these areas. Um, and of course, there was lots of recommendations uh, that prisons need to heed in in those particular reports that are inv- are available online, but make for incredibly distressing reading. Actually, how do you and whose job is it to then make sure that those recommendations are acted upon? That's a really good question, and it's something I've been banging on about for all my time in post. It's it's not ours and we're not resourced to do it. And that is hugely frustrating for us because it means that we get the action plan, which promises action. And that's not always for the prison service. Sometimes it's for um, the NHS or for healthcare providers or for private companies. But we get the action plan, which tells us what is promised in, in response to one of our recommendations. But then we have no way of following up on whether that action actually happens. The only way we have is through the inspectorate. So where the inspectorate are going in to carry out an inspection, they will ask us for information about outstanding PPO recommendations and they will take that information with them and they will look at whether there are um, recommendations that are still outstanding or whether action has been taken and they will include that in their inspection report. But that's only if they're going into that prison anyway. They don't go in specifically to look at PPO recommendations. So there is a bit of a gap. We we will find out if we go into the same prison and find the same things have gone wrong, of course. We'll, it will then become clear to us that things haven't been put right. And what we've started to do when that happens is to consider how we can escalate that recommendation. So as well as making it to the governor, we might escalate it to the prison group director or to the um, somebody more senior in HMPPS and ask them to contact me directly to say what, what they've done about it or what they're going to do about it. Now, the only person who can reject a recommendation that we make uh, within the prison service is the director general of prisons, Phil Koppel. So that usually that means that most recommendations will be accepted and we'd expect them to be accepted because they're usually sensible things that we recommend. But there is um, there is an issue about follow up and about impact. And it's been my number one priority all of the time that I've been in this job on both the complaints and the fatal incidents side to try to look at how we can strengthen the impact, how we can make more difference, how we can understand why people don't always do what they say they're going to do because it's not it's generally not because they don't want to or because they don't plan to because if you speak to most people working in prisons at all levels particularly in in relation to deaths they they are very distressed by somebody dying in their prison or on their watch so they don't want more deaths in prisons they want fewer they want prisons to be safer and more decent but something is going on that makes it difficult for prisons to put things right and often it's not big things, is it? Often it can be actually quite high impact, small things. Absolutely. And sometimes the barriers are about resources, as you've suggested. Sometimes they're about culture. 
Sometimes they're about us perhaps making the recommendations to at the wrong level. So, you know, sometimes if we're finding things going wrong in our prison, it may well be a more systemic failing. It might, might be a more systemic cultural issue that, that pertains across the prison service rather than just something that's, you know, happening at HMP Leeds or Pentonville or uh, Manchester. But we, we, we tend to make our recommendations to the governor. Oh, we've been thinking about that as well. We've been thinking about could we do things differently and, you know, make some more systemic recommendations to the wider prison service. We, we haven't decided what we want to do there yet, but that's one issue that we've considered. Yeah. OK, it's quite interesting. So I was just reflecting uh, back on a podcast I did with the um, previous chief inspector of prisons, Peter Clark. And um, I was asking him about what power or authority he had over his inspection report. So he goes to or his, his inspectors go to a prison or he goes to a prison and they say it might be appalling and you need to do X, Y and Z to make it better. And he it's quite interesting because he had similar frustrations to you because I said, what happens Let's take the example of Liverpool Prison, for example, which was in a terrible state and, you know, bad report after or bad inspection after bad inspection and then an urgent notification requirement. But clearly people are allowed to ignore and it's an element of accountability in the system that just seems to be like this sort of invisible thing that no one can get hold of. And it's not like it hasn't been a problem for a long time. It seems like it's been not just a problem for a long time. People know about it. As I say, some of it is 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 about the, the the barriers that are genuinely there that stop people doing what what they what they know they need to do, but some of it is about the absence of consequences. So if if somebody ignores one of our recommendations or one of the inspectorate's recommendations, that there are limited consequences to that happening. I mean, you might you might get a change in governor, you might get some members of the management team moved on. But other than that, it's sometimes difficult to see what does happen. Now, I'm not saying we should blame people at the lowest level when things go wrong, because as I say, often it is a, a systemic issue. It could be about resources or culture or or policies or processes. Um, but certainly the absence of any consequences, and I know this from my own experience as a governor, you know, if a PPO report came into my prison and crossed my desk, um, it's sometimes wouldn't be my highest priority. So I think what we've tried to do, because I'm I'm always looking for solutions rather than just sort of moaning about the problems, is we've tried to work more collaboratively with the prison service, particularly with the prison group directors who are in a position to, you know, put put some um, pressure on or support for governors who are finding it difficult to put things right. And we've tried to, you know, understand more about what we can do how our scrutiny can genuinely be helpful so we've not seen collaboration as a threat to our independence we've seen it as a way of working jointly with the prison service to to try to put things right um you know rather than just going into prisons that are working really really hard just to get through every day um you know that starts to feel a bit like you know going onto a battlefield and bayonet in the wounded doesn't it when we we're, we're sort of yeah. it's really really easy really easy to go in and say what's going wrong sometimes um, more difficult to say, how can we work with you to help you to put it right? Yeah. And you're coming to the end of your term, aren't you, as ombudsman? Mm-hmm. So I was just keen to hear um, maybe some reflections on your time in post and and what 
well, you've stated very articulately the sort of areas that you'd like to see some change in. But has it has it been a, a positive experience for you? Well, you're absolutely right. I'm coming to the end of my time, but I'm not at the end of my time yet because it's taking quite a long time to recruit a successor. So I have agreed to stay on for a bit. So in terms of you, me telling you what I really think, it's probably... A bit early. <laughs> a little too soon. We'll have to get you back on the pod when that. <laughs> I think, um, you know, more seriously, I think I have really tried to focus on impact and outcomes rather than on, on process. And I think, you know, and I've tried to work collaboratively with the services in Remit, so mainly the prison service. And, and I think what I've also tried to do is open up the PPO so that people have felt more able to come and work with us and bring their expertise into our world. So we've done a lot of work with academics. We've opened up to academics. We've been very clear to them that, you know, we are a a welcoming place for people who might want to work with us and do some research. We haven't got any money, but we've got lots of really, really interesting data and you know reports so we've we've you know successfully engaged in some partnerships and we've been you know we've been doing some work to look at how we can make our reports more impactful you know the the work on post-release deaths came um, partly out of some you know work that we've done with academics we've opened up more to charities organizations and some of the independent organizations so we work more closely you know, with the Prison Reform Trust, with the Criminal Justice Alliance, the Howard League and, and so on. So we've tried to be a, a more open and welcoming place for some of those organisations. Um, one of the other things that we're very proud of is that we've got two people on our team now who came to us from prison. So they were recruited um, to work with us from prison, both on our complaints assessment team. Um, one woman who had served a, a, a sentence in both Bronzefield and East Sutton Park and was recruited, um, they're both of them recruited through the Going Forward into Employment Scheme that's run by the Cabinet Office and um, uh, another colleague who had served 12 years in custody on an IPP sentence and came to us from Stanford Hill. Uh, now they've both been with us for a couple of years now so they're, they're established civil servants now, they're you know their probation period's over they they're just you know in, their status is exactly the same as as mine is in the organization um we want to do more of that we want to bring people in from underrepresented groups and we want to bring them in at more senior levels whether I'll have time to do that before I go but you know into investigator posts into posts where they're managing people making decisions so we 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 what we want to do is to get out to some of those organizations that have access to people with lived experience to talk to them about you know how we can um how we can recruit people through our normal recruitment policies you know rather than necessarily just going through the bespoke scheme how we can just be a more welcoming place for people who might have a criminal record or they might be from an underrepresented group you know we've been talking to the um, traveler movement about how we can um, encourage people from a, a a traveler background into into our organization um so there's lots of exciting stuff that um, we've done already that we're very proud of, but also lots more to do. So, you know, there's a big, a big, exciting job there for whoever, whoever gets the job and, and takes over from me. Exactly. And if um, there was anyone listening that was sort of thinking about a career, I always try and sort of build this into any podcast because I think, you know, myself being a, having been a criminology student and you sort of think, gosh, you know, there's so many avenues you can go down. But 
the criminal justice system is a weird old beast, as you know, and um, some people haven't heard of whether it's the independent monitoring board or the, uh, the inspectors, and now you've got the ombudsman. So if someone was interested in getting a job with the ombudsman, um, how would they go about that? Okay, um, well, we, we advertise all our vacancies through the civil service website. So um, we, and we, we also sometimes use um, other publications. So as I've already mentioned, we have been advertising in the Traveller Movement newsletter. We've been advertising, you know, through colleagues in the PRT and so on. But um, we, we do advertise through the usual civil service outlets. But also, if anybody wanted to be added to our mailing list so that we would then notify them of any vacancies that were coming up, um, just just go onto our website and go to our email address, you know, our, our general email address, our PPO email address, and just um, send us your name and email contact details. We'll add you to the list. And then when we do have opportunities coming up, we'll, we'll notify you of them. So it may be, they may be investigator posts. We've just um, advertised for a knowledge officer where we've got analyst posts that we've just advertised for. So there are a range of things, you know, support, support roles in our sort of administrative function, um, but all sorts of ways that you can you can get involved. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks, Edwina. Bye bye. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.